episode 366, an in-depth dissection of our dysfunctional healthcare benefits market. Today, I speak with Kevin Shulman, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. First of all, this is a 400 level discussion. If you think you already know all about our dysfunctional healthcare benefits market, then this show is for you. Before we begin, I just want to say something. I'm going to refer back to David Muelstein's episode, that's 364, where he talks about the first step toward healthcare transformation. It is, let's just say, for incumbent health systems and payers, people who work there, to step back and in the harsh light of day, really contemplate their business model. See it clearly. If you're listening to the show, then know that I love you. So this is not a condemnation of you or the great things that you are likely doing in your department. I see you as a change maker. But contemplating your organization as a whole is like the first step of a 10-step program to admit what friends and family were saying at the intervention. If you're not yet at the, what's it called, contemplative stage in your journey towards transformation, you could skip ahead to the 23-minute mark approximately for some advice on what people who work at incumbent payers and or providers can do right now. My one and only intent here is to see change happen. What I see currently are certainly efforts to improve quality at some level, but those responsible for finance, premiums, and the employer sales team are in a different part of the building. I mean, maybe a first step here is, can you invite those guys and gals to your meetings? Okay, so there was a paper that came out in JAMA entitled The Dysfunctional Health Benefits Market and Implications for U.S. Employers and Employees. It was by David Schenker, Arnold Milstein, and Kevin Schulman, who is my guest today. David Schenker, by the way, was on the show earlier, episode 363. So certainly go back and listen to that This paper, the Dysfunctional Health Benefits Market paper, showed that commercial insurance costs have gone up 4x the rate of other benchmark goods or services in price. So bottom line, in quotes, it is assumed that insurers compete intensely to improve the value received by employers and employees by negotiating to keep prices down and advocating for employers and employees. It turns out, though, not so much with that. My guest today, as mentioned, is Kevin Shulman, MD, an author on that paper. And he says this much more eloquently than I will. But the skinny is this. Because insurer profits are capped at 15%, that means that the more healthcare costs go up, the more possible profit in absolute terms that a health insurance carrier can make. After all, 15% of a bigger number is a bigger number. If you look at how Wall Street responds to these bigger numbers all the way around, higher costs translating to higher profits, that whole thing, you will find that Wall Street likes this profit-generating formula very much. Share prices go up when that 15% goes up. 
What does Wall Street like less? It likes less restructuring and pushing providers to deliver better care for less cost and then passing those savings on to employers and employees. Even if you increase quality and decrease costs really well and or profitably as an insurer, share prices do not rise nearly as much as they rise if you phone it in with the, in air quotes, negotiations with providers. Nonprofits, by the way, get no pass here either. Some of the most expensive hospitals in the country, which are nonprofit, are doing their thing in areas where nonprofit carriers are the big kahunas. Call it margins, call it profits, whatever. Same thing. Listen to the show with David Muelstein from two weeks ago, episode 364. It's all about the business models. And that business model is revenue maximization, period, end of the sentence. So who loses in this equation? Oh, right. Patients and employers. Read anything by Dave Chase. Link in the show notes for more on how crushing this loss is that patients and employers suffer. Middle-class wage stagnation, bankruptcies, financial toxicity, that is actually clinical toxicity, skyrocketing premiums, way over the cost of inflation, that healthcare costs borne by employers are a driver for offshoring because they make American labor so expensive. I mean, a study the other day said that non-adherence due to a patient's inability to pay for treatment will be a leading cause of death in 2030. That's what this all is adding up to because of business models. Insurers have become the piggy banks for health systems, as my guest today, Dr. Kevin Schulman, says. This piggy bank is funded with the pennies, nickels, and dimes from you and me, the insured lives, our employers, and taxpayers. So unless you're a shareholder in one of these carriers and they're vertically integrated PBMs, of course, then, I mean, I guess, good for you. Or getting political donations from them might also be a net plus for you personally. Where are the activist investors in all of this? Something that Dr. Shulman said today I had never heard before, and wow, it explains so much. It's this whole idea of some, not all, but some health systems clamoring about how they have to charge commercial patients more because they are losing so much on their Medicare patients. They have to cost shift to commercial lives. Here's what Dr. Kevin Shulman said about that in my own words. Cost is a construct. Cost is a dynamic fiction. I mean, Say I buy a mansion, I put in a jacuzzi and a tropical flower bed that needs to be misted with water on the half hour. Then I tell you that my fixed costs are really high and therefore my tuna sandwiches are really expensive. I just made them expensive. I made the decision to increase my costs. The interesting backdrop for that that I just talked about is that in competitive marketplaces, or in Maryland, hospitals do just fine, thank you very much, getting paid Medicare rates. They don't have to price shift. But in markets with no competition, where the hospitals decided to build baby build, they created these giant brick and mortar money pits that, yeah, cost a boatload. And then they complained that they have to price shift to employers and their own patients to pay for it all. One thing that we don't talk about today are non-fee-based brokers and the role that they play in all of this. Link in the show notes to a recent lawsuit that is a pretty perfect example of what I'm saying here. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Kevin Schulman, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Commercial insurers, 
at the same time that health systems have been consolidating, so have insurance carriers, right? Like they have been consolidating like nobody's business. So why aren't they providing that counter pressure to keep prices in check? I mean, conventional wisdom would suggest that your insurance carrier, I mean, that's kind of like what their job is supposed to be, right? <laughs> to keep the prices in check. Why have they become price takers? Healthcare is really, all healthcare is local. And so if I own all the doctors and hospitals in a region, the health insurers can't really use their market power either because they need that hospital organization as something essential to their network or network adequacy. There's no alternative within some geographic market or very few alternatives, and they don't have that much market share. So they might be a big national insurer, they might have 25 million covered lives, but in my local market, they're only 5% of you know the hospital volume. They just don't have a lot of leverage. And they haven't been very aggressive at thinking about ways of creating leverage. We've seen some narrow networks as an attempt by payers to, to get leverage in terms of negotiations, but those have been really modest and few and far between and not very popular with consumers. Well, I think that's certainly true with some of the large national plans where exactly like you said, they might in the aggregate have a lot of lives. But if you look at in any given region, it's a it's a small percentage, like which to your exact point does not give you a ton of leverage. But then there are other players that are very regional, like some of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans that have 40% of lives in a geography. You would think that they would be able to flex some muscles. One of the interesting that things that's happened in the market is the Trump administration had these price transparency rules where the hospitals actually have to post their prices that are negotiated with payers. And the amazing thing was the amount of variation, tenfold variation in prices within a region, within a hospital system. It doesn't look like any kind of systematic effort to obtain the best price in a market, commercial payers. One thing that you have said in your article, and I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the things is the parallel between prices going up and share prices of the for-profit insurance carriers. So if I'm thinking this through, this could be a very good explanation for why the not so much with the pricing pressure. Yeah. In our paper, we did some back of the envelope calculations. So if you think about the structure of a health plan where we have a medical loss ratio, in our analysis, we had a medical loss ratio of 85%. That means they have 15% of premium to pay for marketing costs, administrative costs, and their profits. And so their profits are really kind of a fixed percentage of premium. Obviously, Wall Street records growth in profits. And so how does a health plan get bigger profits? Well, one of the ways they get bigger profits is by healthcare costs going up. So if, if healthcare costs go up by 40% without doing anything, share prices are going to rise uh, pretty dramatically. And one of the other parts of this, as we were doing this analysis, so what happens if we, instead of allowing healthcare costs to go up, do something to moderate the growth of healthcare costs? and instead reform the way we you know, reduce administrative costs and increase profits, well, share price didn't go up enough. It went up less than it did not doing any work and letting healthcare costs go up. And so at the core of this, Wall Street rewards predictable performance. And the predictable performance of a health plan is great if healthcare costs go up. The predictable performance of health plans is not great if they have to do some kind of innovative restructuring of their own internal book of business or of their network to try and reduce the rate of growth of healthcare costs. Every system is perfectly designed to produce the results that it does. It sounds like our system is perfectly designed to produce the exorbitantly fast-growing healthcare prices that we see. 
Absolutely. Don Berwick's, he beats that into us that uh, that's what it's designed to do. But I also want to point out that it's really kind of evolved to this. We called it a dysfunctional equilibrium as we were working through the paper of the health plans moving into this position of being price takers, the hospitals moving into position of strategy where they've been able to exert their leverage and continue to raise prices. And they both do very well. The hospital CEOs have record profits. The health plans have record share prices. And everybody in that dysfunctional system is very happy. The problem is that the burden's placed on us as insured covered lives in one of these health plans. You know, if you go back to 2000, the you know, Kaiser Family Foundation survey was the employer-employee contributions out there were around just over $6,000. The most recent, 20 years later, employer-employee contributions health plan are $22,000. And there's not been a dramatic change in technology of the healthcare market. The way we use healthcare is almost identical to how we used it 20 years ago. But what's happened is this tremendous change in pricing structure on the part of the provider organizations and the acquiescence of the health plans and employers to these enormous prices. Many of these, at least on the insurance side, are for-profit their leadership has a fiduciary responsibility only to their shareholders. And that fiduciary responsibility means to make as much money as possible, not to, you know, serve patients better or whatnot. So that CEO's performance or that leadership team's performance is going to be based on their revenue. One of the rationales that health system executives typically give for the prices that they charge over Medicare is they're losing money on Medicare and therefore they have to overcharge commercial price shift to commercial insured lives in order to pay for that. What's your thinking there? So this is an argument. The American Hospital Association has these curves. What it co- the hospital, what the cost of healthcare is, the healthcare service, how much the public payers, Medicare and Medicaid pay, how much the private payers pay. And at the end of the day, the hospital's got to balance their books. So looking cross-sectionally, they say, well, they need to cost shift from the public payers to the private plans to make their ends meet. They're very upfront about that. That's their strategy. Now, what they don't tell you is costs are endogenous. They're like a decision managers make over time. I got in a lot of trouble a long time ago. I was quoted about hospital consolidation you know, you go to Europe to visit cathedrals, you come to the United States to visit hospitals. And the commercial insurance market has become really profitable. It's become the picky bank for healthcare systems. So the strategy of healthcare systems not only was consolidation, but how do I make myself most attractive to commercial paid patients, especially commercial paid patients who needed things like elective surgeries. And so concurrent with all these changes, we went on a real building boom. Because for whatever reason, rather than improve the quality of the service or the experience of the care or coordination of care, hospitals think about hospitals. And so they built new and better, bigger hospitals as a way of tracking more commercial market share. As a result, we've dramatically increased the cost of producing goods and services. So they're right at any given point in time. Now, if you go back to 2000, hospitals were actually breaking even on Medicare. Jamie Robinson published some data in 2012 that in competitive markets where hospitals didn't have as much leverage, they were still making money off Medicare. It's really in the non-competitive markets that have had the strategy of this kind of infrastructure first uh, strategy and this enormous bloat that their cost, the cost of producing healthcare has gone up. And those are the hospitals that, that exert the most leverage on commercial payers. 
So they're right at some level that that's where the profit comes from in a hospital. But what they're wrong about is it's their decision to make the world's most expensive healthcare delivery system. I love how you framed it. Just the whole idea that costs are dynamic. I mean, there's probably a minimum cost or a most efficient price point. But when it starts to go way over that, it's a choice that the providers are making. And some of those choices don't necessarily result in better care in any way. I mean, one of the things which is just axiomatic in healthcare is that price and quality have very little, if anything, to do with each other, which I think is what you're also saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. There was a chart that just came out in just the other day, just healthcare, and it showed that even of the value-based contracts which are being offered, 71% of them are effectively just FFS with an icing of quality metrics on the top. Against the backdrop of what you're talking about right now, does that in any way explain the seeming inability or, or unwillingness for commercial insurers to start paying for value? That's kind of interesting. So how is this going to work? How is value-based care going to work? Well, if you're a practice group, an independent physician practice, like an old IPA, and you don't own the hospital, well, it's easy. You make money by keeping people out of the hospital. But if you're a hospital-based physician group, the hospital gets angry at you if you're keeping people out of the hospital because they make money by keeping people in the hospital. You're destroying demand. If I'm talking in general kind of economic terms here, commercial insurers or health system executives, neither of them have really any incentive to destroy demand. Therefore, FFS is the name of the game. Or should I say programs that don't reduce revenue are the name of the game? Like I keep hearing more and more stories about how some bundled payment program might in fact cost more than all of the individual billing codes if you just aggregated them. Or if costs are reduced, the employer or patient premiums never see it. Like the payer is banking the savings. Not once, honestly, have I seen a premium go down, even where they are doing maybe some interesting things from a quality perspective. There were a bunch of stories in New York Times about hospitals getting really angry once, once you got to like 2% shift in volume because they're such fixed cost infrastructures. They're incredibly sensitive to things on the margin. If you go back, where we got to in the paper is it's not A or B, it's a dysfunctional market. If we look at it that way, if you, you can go back up to 30,000 feet, like what are we trying to accomplish? How are we trying to push the behavior of any of these organizations in a new direction? Little changes in volume or incentives is not going to change the underlying dynamics. What's going to change the strategy of the healthcare system so that when the hospital CEO comes to work or meets with their board, they say, you know what, we have to take 5 or 10% off you know, of our investment strategy. We want, need to achieve this price point for a given set of services over time. We want to actually take three of those expensive MRI machines we just bought and make them fallow because we, we don't really need them. That, that was being used for unnecessary services. And on the same thing on the health plan side, where, where the CEO of the health plan actually has to apologize to me as a member of his plan because my premium costs went up. That's the market dynamic we need to, to move to. Before we get into some of the solves at the governmental level to address what clearly the current efforts are not doing a great job addressing, and maybe we can chalk it up to trial and error and learning lessons. You're being very generous. <laughs> but I want to get to one thing first. If I'm a payer, right, like maybe I'm a carrier, maybe I'm a plan sponsor, 
And I'm doing some interesting things to curb price growth that are going to result in in lowering the use of low value services or improving the value of care. What do either you see in the marketplace that you think is really interesting and it could just be being piloted or, or whatnot, or maybe in certain local markets, or what do you suspect might work? Like if you were going to give some advice to, like I said, plan sponsors or carriers who are really trying to make an impact in the absence of overarching government policy, what are your suggestions for them? I've had a lot of discussions with payers over the last year, and, and I keep coming away from conversations that payers are more worried about hospital margins than hospital CEOs are. So I don't know how aggressive they want to be in the market, but I think we could break it down into chunks. So one is, what do I do about this local monopoly and consolidation? The way we can get around that was with digital and telemedicine, right? A digital first kind of footprint, some mechanism to help painlessly steer people to, if I have a better contract here than there for colonoscopy, why don't I have a tool on my phone that tells me, you know what, you get your colonoscopy for free here. And if you go there, it's a $2,500 copay. That would work really quickly. So there are all kinds of ways in which, from a payer perspective, you should be using technology to be a service to your member. From the consumer side, help me navigate the healthcare system. If it's good value, then reduce my copay for going in that direction. So I think there's a whole bunch of things that we can do in that direction. Some ideas from long ago about, you know, capitation is not a new idea. A lot of the ideas everyone's kicking around now is deja vu to the 1990s. And at the time, we were talking about primary care capitation as this nirvana, which it never was or has been. But I was arguing, actually, I was thinking that that's entirely wrong. We shouldn't capitate primary care. And you could do some kind of salary and, bon- and bonus, but we want from primary care is access. The fee for service is really good for access. You know, what we want is specialists that are the expensive part of the healthcare system to use resources more wisely, right? And so why would you capitate primary care doctors that don't cost you a lot of money? Why wouldn't you capitate specialists? So think about a heart failure physician getting $500 per year for a heart failure patient. I had this magical cardiologist when I was in training, attending physician, Mark Josephson. And Mark was old school as you could get. His physical diagnosis was exquisite. His, he could actually listen with a stethoscope and do a better job of reporting on heart function than someone taking an echocardiogram. And so, you know, if Mark had those skills and doesn't need an echo, Mark gets the $500 payment, doesn't ever have to use an echo, gets to keep the whole thing. Alternatively, these days, you know, very few people are trained to do physical diagnosis at that level or are capable of doing that because we have so much imaging. So if it, you know, requires me to do an echo on every heart failure patient to figure out the valve function and the ejection fraction, that's perfectly fine. I don't want to change your behavior, but I don't want to pay you for the fact that you didn't learn how to do this in the first place. So you still get the same $500. And that would be kind of a specialist cap model where we don't want to get involved in telling you how to practice, whether if you need an echo, I want you to use the echo, but I don't want to pay you for it. And if you need like a CAT scan every month, that's fine with me. You need that to be a good doctor. That's what you need, but I don't want to pay you for that. Those would be really interesting specialist capitation models. That's certainly something that I never had heard before. And I'm sure that there's a number of listeners that would be happy to go toe-to-toe with you on your non-capitating primary care stance. <laughs> but we'll save that for another day. You know, it, uh, I round in hospital medicine and I, I kind of half joke. I said, these patients are too sick to be in the hospital. We got to send them back to their primary care doctors. 
<laughs> that's great. I love it. Is there anything that you're seeing out there in the marketplace that some of the larger carriers are doing that you think are worth replicating? Big pause. There's a big pause when you can talk about all the exciting innovations in the commercial health insurance market. I think the other focus, and and this is from employer side, one of the things I've been very focused on recently is, is drug pricing. And again, this is another area of the marketplace. Now, all of the insurers are now PBM. And when Express Scripts was acquired, it was actually more profitable than Anthem, Cigna, Aetna, or Humana. The price of a vial of insulin in the United States is $270. The price of the same vial by the same manufacturer in Canada is $30, probably coming off the same production line. We have all these intermediaries in the marketplace that, that are this, you know, to some extent, this is all, we talked about fiduciaries before. We have a market where there are lots of intermediaries in the market who are paid from both sides. They're paid from, in the PBM's case, they're paid from the pharmaceutical company and the manufacturer. And do they represent one side of the equation or not? It's really hard to understand that. There's lots of people that represent themselves in the marketplace. But I really think we need to go back to, you know, the employer purchasing my healthcare goods and service. Because if we can't make a good argument that there's some value to me getting insurance through employment, most other parts of the world don't do it through employment. They threw it through government and do it some, some other way. I think it's open question whether this model is really serving the American public. When you talk about employer-employee healthcare being $22,000 a household for people who at the median income are making $80,000 a year, that's a huge chunk of money that, you know, if you offered people, do you want $22,000 health insurance or do you want to take home the cash? We know what the American public would choose, most of the American public. The other way we've been looking at this, you know, in class, I talk about the impact of health insurance, healthcare costs. It, it led to the offshoring of all these industries. It led to the decline of manufacturing because labor costs are so high in the United States. Well, benefits are a big part of that. Benefit costs here at Stanford are about 30% of salary. So if we're going to try and onshore, we got to think about ways of doing things differently and making people more accountable for these choices. We did an interesting analysis a couple years ago where we took a large database called MAPS, and we broke spending up into 10 buckets of equal spending, not by population size, but by percentage of premium. Certain people, healthcare is totally catastrophic. 10% of your health insurance premium is going for the care of people that are spending over you know, $180,000 for services in a year. But the good news is that's a really small proportion of the population. The people in the highest spending category, just 0.27% of the population. You know, from a flood insurance perspective, it's the equivalent of like a one in 400 year flood. At the bottom end of the distribution are people who are fortunate to not have any, you know, major health issues that are spending lots of money on health insurance and not using a lot of services. You're buying health insurance a little bit to protect yourself, but mostly to pay for the cost of the catastrophic illness. It's a transfer of money from the healthy to the, to the sick. That's called charity. Right, where you make a huge charitable contribution every year when you buy your health insurance. What we're talking about now is if it's charity, if it's I'm donating money, massive amounts of money from my income and my family to somebody else, then the people involved in the organization and delivery of that should act like a charity. It shouldn't be a for-profit, for-profit CEO making hundreds of millions of dollars. It shouldn't be hospital CEOs and boards that are incredibly well compensated. The local dental plan had a scandal because their CEO was making $16 million a year. 
they're charities because they're just moving my money to the care of other people. If you look at the healthcare market from that perspective, we have huge conflicts. The intermediaries are not acting as stewards in the charity. The delivery organizations are not acting as stewards in the charity. And that ends up being philosophically some of the disconnect. How do I look at this? You know, if it's a charity, you wouldn't be talking about profit margins. Just the other day, there was an article in Stat News about how some activist investors at several pharma companies, I think Lilly was one, I'm pretty sure. And then I think some of the other manufacturers of, of COVID vaccines, how some activist investors want to create expanding access as one of the major corporate goals right up there with revenue generation. And the companies themselves fought back hard on that and were trying to claim some legal jeopardy of doing it or, or whatnot. But same rules sort of apply there. You know, like we've got an industry here that's supposed to be providing healthcare and we've got a revenue generation as a benchmark of success, which is just in conflict right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, I look, I teach at the business school. I, I like the idea of profit, but I like the idea that they provide value. At a fundamental level, Switzerland is a mixed public-private system, multi-payer system, spending about 12.5% of GDP on healthcare. If we chucked the U.S. system and adopted the Swiss system, where there's still for-profit pharmaceutical companies and everyone makes a living, a nice living, if we chucked the U.S. system and adopted the Swiss system, we'd save about five percentage points of GDP. These days, that's about a trillion dollars. It's, it's massive what we're talking about. These On the back end, the administrative costs, the non-value-added parts of the healthcare system. And then the effects of this, when it trickles down into the incentives at the provider level, at the front lines, you know, you go into work in the morning, you're not sure what anyone wants you to do during the day other than generate more RVUs. And then you'll get, the only feedback you get is negative. Like your quality score was down, you didn't document this. Can you redo your chart that way? Because this value-based payment program requires you to say this and this value-based payment program requires you to say that. Those, you know, That's just not a great trajectory for the healthcare system. I think there's, it's a really important time for us to think about how do we create a different trajectory? The one that's more sustainable, the one that's going to meet the needs of the population where they're at, and one where people are focused on how do we make this affordable, good value to the individual consumer, and that we're wide stewards and fiduciaries for not for shareholders alone, but also for those of us who are buying health insurance. I definitely would refer anyone back to the article recommendations at the government level to kind of force everything that we were talking about to happen across regions or, or nationally. But is there anything at a higher level that you want to mention? We've been talking about antitrust enforcement for 20 years and we haven't gotten there. I think we should still push on these price transparency rules. That's that's really been eye opener. And uh, hopefully employers will recognize how they're being used and abused in the marketplace. There have been huge fights in Vermont between the state employee health plan, the state, and the University of Vermont health system. There was just something the other day about uh, United threatening to pull out of the state. I, I testified. I said, you realize your name is on the University of Vermont health system. If you don't want them to act as this profit-maximizing for-profit entity, why don't you tax the CEO's salary? or make it illegal to pay the CEO a bonus based on the financial profitability of their system. We have lots of opportunities in governance at a local level and national level to change the direction of these things. 
I worked a lot with the Charlotte Observer that was talking about the growth of what's now Atrium. It was Carolina's Healthcare at the time. And I asked them, just go to the board and ask the board why they're pursuing a strategy that's raising their own health insurance premiums. The board's composed of local business people. Why is it that when you're on the board, you're all excited about the hospital making more money and raising the rates to Blue Cross Blue Shield? And then when you go back home, you and your employees are complaining about the prices offered by Blue Cross Blue Shield. You know, we have lots more leverage than we're using to, to reconcile these things. Yeah, amazing point. <laughs> Dr. Kevin Schulman, is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to mention here? I really appreciate you digging into this issue. What we've been trying to do in our research is really take deep dives into things where people aren't looking, frankly trying to find and explain how these transactions are leading to these prices at the hospital level, at the pharmaceutical level, at the administrative cost level. They're not all that exciting from a research perspective, but they're critically important. And they're the things I think that are going to make a difference. If we continue to shine light and create transparency around how dysfunctional the market is and why it's dysfunctional, then I think there's going to be lots of pressures on, on the current actors but also maybe opportunities for new actors to come in and have a different structure of the market, which would be great. Sunlight is a good disinfectant. Dr. Kevin Schulman, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for inviting me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find all of the shows Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.